Today is Wednesday, June the 14th, 2023. It's Flag Day. In the United States, a day honoring the national flag, commemorating the date in 1777 when the United States approved the design for its first national flag. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at Hank at PCRadioShow.org. The United States is openly stockpiling data on awed citizens. A newly declassified report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence reveals that the federal government is buying troves of data about Americans. The United States government has been secretly amassing a large amount of sensitive and intimate information on its own citizens. A group of senior advisors inform Avril Haines, the director of the National Intelligence, more than a year ago. The size and scope of the government effort to accumulate data revealing the minute details of Americans' lives are described at length by the director's own panel of experts in a newly declassified report. Haines had first tasked her advisors in late 2021 with untangling a web of secretive business arrangements between commercial data brokers and the United States intelligence community members. This report reveals what we feared most. Intelligence agencies are flouting the law and buying the information about Americans that Congress and the Supreme Court have made abundantly clear the government should not have. Ron Wyden, a U.S. senator who's a Democrat from Oregon, said the following. I've been warning for years that if using a credit card to buy an American's personal information voids their Fourth Amendment rights, then traditional checks and balances for government surveillance will crumble. The Office of Director of National Intelligence, that's the ODNI, did not immediately respond to a request for comment, and the press was unable to reach any members of the senior advisory panel whose names have been redacted in the report. Former members have included ex-CIA officials of note and top defense industry leaders. Wyden had Press Haynes, previously the number two at the Central Intelligence Agency, that's the CIA, to release the panel's report during a March 8th hearing. Haynes replied at the time that she believed it absolutely should be read by the public. On Friday, the report was declassified and released by the ODNI, which had been embroiled in a legal fight with a digital rights nonprofit, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, that's an EPIC, over a host of related documents. Chris Bommel, a law fellow at EPIC, says, This report makes it clear that the government continues to think it can buy its way out of constitutional protections using taxpayers' own money. Congress must tackle the government's data broker's pipeline this year before it considers any authorization of Section 702 
of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that's the FISA Act, referring to the ongoing political fight over the so-called crown jewels of the U.S. surveillance agencies. The ODNI's own panel of advisors makes clear that the government's static interpretations of what constitutes publicly available information poses a significant threat to the public. The advisors decry existing policies that automatically conflate, in the first place, being able to buy information with it being considered public. The information being commercially sold about Americans today is more revealing, available on more people in bulk, less possible to avoid, and less well understood than that which is traditionally thought of as being publicly available. Perhaps most controversially, the report states that the government believes it can persistently track the phones of millions of Americans without a warrant so long as it pays for the information. Were the government to simply demand access to a device location instead, it would be considered a Fourth Amendment search and would require a judge sign-off. But because companies are willing to sell the information, not only to the U.S. government, but to other companies as well, the government considers it publicly available and therefore asserts that it can purchase it. It is no secret, the report adds, that it is often trivial to de-anonymize and identify individuals from data that was packaged as ethically fine for commercial use because it had been anonymized first. Such data may be useful, it says, to identify every person who attended a protest or rally based on their smartphone location or ad tracking records. Such civil liberties concerns are prime examples of how large quantities of nominally public information can result in sensitive aggregations. What's more, information collected for one purpose may be reused for other purposes, which may raise risks beyond those originally calculated and affect core mission creep. These are legal hurdles that no longer bother an increasing number of government agencies. Access to the most sensitive information about a person was once usually obtained in the course of a targeted and predicated investigation, the report says. Not anymore. The report notes, the government would never have been permitted to compel billions of people to carry location tracking devices on their persons at all times, to log and track most of their social interactions, or to keep flawless records of all their reading habits, yet smartphones, connected cars, web tracking technologies, the Internet of Things, and other innovations have had this effect without government participation. Spectrum adds automatic surcharge and customers will pay more due to rising prices. Spectrum has tacked on automatic fees, which the TV, cable, and Internet company is calling broadcast TV surcharges. The surcharge is due to Cable Television Consumer Protection and Competition Act of 1992. The law enables local U.S. broadcast TV stations to negotiate with cable and satellite providers for consent to carry their broadcast signals. Stations have recently increased their prices for the distribution of their signals to charter communications customers. This means that Spectrum and other potentially other providers pass the charges down to customers. Spectrum said that the signals used to be available at little to no cost but have since increased. 
The prices now demanded by local broadcast TV stations have necessitated that we pass these costs on to customers, the company said on its website. Customers are now likely seeing a surcharge of about $3 to $5 per month. The fee took effect last year. Spectrum added, we're in favor of changes to this law, and if those changes are successful, we'll remove the additional charges. Spectrum has various other charges it tacks on to customers' monthly bills. The provider has up to 19 fees, not including other statewide charges. Spectrum has what is called a business license fee, where a fee or tax is assessed on charter for doing business in your state or locality that is then passed on to the customer. It has an E911 charge, that's 911 fee, imposed by local government to help cover the cost of 911 service. However, it's up to the customer's local government to determine whether to provide a 911 system. All costs associated with 911 systems are collected by the phone company through your monthly telephone bill. Next up is the regulatory cost fee, which is put onto the customer for FCC operations and charges supporting telephone number systems and telephone number portability. Another fee customers see on bills is the secure connection fee. Spectrum charges this fee, claiming it covers the cost of devoting considerable resources to the development and implementation of measures designed to ensure that the connection between a Spectrum receiver. Spectrum customers aren't the only ones footing the bill for many charges. Other providers charging fees. AT&T has added a partial month credit or surcharge for customers who change their plans mid-pay period. The company charges all its customers in 30-day pay cycles, and AT&T will prorate charges for those who upgrade plans during their 30-day payment period. If you change a plan or add on in the middle of a bill period, you'll see partial month charges or credits on your next bill, the company claims on its website. A customer that jumps from a $35 per month line will cost $1.16 per day, and a $50 line will cost $1.67 a day. If a customer upgrades 10 days into the cycle, they'll pay $11.60 for the first part of the month and $33.34 for the second part. However, customers who downgrade will receive a credit for the next 30-day pay period. Just note that a simple way to avoid the added fee is by waiting until the end of the pay period to upgrade any service. Cable, internet, and TV providers aren't the only companies charging fees. Harvard's future of work professor sees one job in particular disappearing because of artificial intelligence. Professor Joseph Fuller predicts that a significant chunk of what people do today will go away. Artificial intelligence will probably not steal your job except if you're doing that one. While white-collar jobs as we know them are hardly set to disappear, a handful of them will dwindle hugely, according to Joseph Fuller, a professor of management at Harvard Business School. And Fuller should know, before Harvard, he spent three decades heading a consulting firm focused on corporate strategy and competitiveness that was ultimately acquired by Deloitte. And at Deloitte, he co-leads the Managing the Future of Work initiative, which researches the shifting global product and labor markets, evolving regulations, 
and the gig economy. There's one type of job he wouldn't want right now. I wouldn't want to be someone who does the reading or summarization of business books to send out 20-page summaries because artificial intelligence is really good at summarization already, Fuller told Fortune. Artificial intelligence has already become a powerhouse across sectors and disciples. Some say it's moving faster than real life. Just last year, OpenAI unveiled ubiquitous ChatGPT and Google launched DeepMind, which went on to predict the structure of nearly every protein in the human body. Back at the office, the next phase of work is taking material shape, particularly as generative AI becomes a cornerstone of modern business. Fuller predicts that a significant chunk of what people do today will go away, although he adds that a material amount of work will remain. As artificial intelligence goes multimodal, able to draw on pictorial, audio, and alphanumeric data to carry out processes, our current iteration of ChatGPT could soon seem quaint. That's where the trouble for workers whose jobs are easy to automate might easily kick in. That doesn't catch workers entirely by surprise. 40% of them who are familiar with ChatGPT are concerned it will replace their jobs completely. Yet, many experts, including Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, whose company invested heavily in open AI, insist that artificial intelligence is no threat to human ingenuity and creativity. When executed correctly, artificial intelligence in the workplace doesn't threaten real jobs, Nadella said. It just eliminates the drudgery. Indeed, artificial intelligence is very effective in making real people more productive, Fuller said for better or for worse. Out with the rote and in with the creative. Routine contract lawyers, those who write outstanding submissions, will be the first to see their jobs go, Fuller anticipates. Other workers in jobs with similar rote duties will follow in short order. There will be open source data that will knock out 90% of their billable hours, he says. Luckily, that's probably just a few people's idea of a dream job. The future of white-collar work looks a lot less dull a lot less routine, and has a lot less filling out expense reports or quarterly forecast updates. Fuller says, business intelligence systems will gobble up most of the boring stuff. What's left for humans? Judgment, motivation, collaboration, and articulating a vision, even a vision for what AI itself can do next. Luckily for most workers, that's what bosses want and need most. The World Economic Forum In 2023, the Future of Jobs report found that four of the top five skills employers are going to demand in the next five years are creative thinking, analytical thinking, curiosity and lifelong learning, and resilience, flexibility, and agility. That sounds like the fun part of the work to me, Fuller says, and much harder to automate. Google's generative AI platform is now available to everyone. Google announced the general availability of generative AI services based on Vertex AI, the machine learning platform as a service, offering from Google Cloud. With the service becoming generally available, enterprises and organizations could integrate the platform's capability with their applications. With this update, Developers can use several new tools and models, such as the Word Completion Model Driven by PALM2, 
the Embeddings API for text and other foundation models in the model garden. They can also leverage the tools available within the Generative AI Studio to fine-tune and deploy customized models. Google claims that enterprise-grade data governance, security, and safety features are also built into the Vertex AI platform. This provides confidence to customers in consuming the foundation models, customizing them with their own data, and building generative AI applications. Customers can use the model garden to access and evaluate base models from Google and its partners. There are over 60 models at this time, and they plan for additional models in the future. Also, the coding model for code completion, code generation, and chat announced at the Google I.O. conference in May is now available for public preview. Vertex AI gives builders a full set of tools to help them tune, launch, and manage models in production. For example, it was the first enterprise-grade ML to offer reinforcement learning with human feedback in May. This service leverages human feedback to improve the accuracy of fine-tuned models trained with custom datasets. With Generative AI Studio becoming generally available, customers can use a wider range of tools such as multiple tuning methods for large models to build custom generative AI applications much faster. Google assures customers that with Vertex AI and General App Builder, their data remains under their full control and will not leave their tenant. The data is safeguarded during transit and while at rest, and Google will not share it or use it for training its models. Google tests its new models carefully to ensure they meet its responsible AI principles, and all of its generative AI services include the user security, data management, and access controls that Google Cloud customers have come to expect. Cloud providers are now competing in the field of generative AI, which allows for the creation of new content using machine learning. This gives customers the option to choose from multiple platforms. Microsoft is positioning itself as a leader in this area by partnering with OpenAI and making significant investments. With Google announcing the general availability of its own generative AI platform, customers get the choice to choose the best options for their specific business needs. They don't have a fixed pricing schedule released to the public yet. A manned Mars mission is viable if it doesn't exceed four years concludes international research team. A UCLA research geophysicist said limiting the duration of a round trip to the red planet would help reduce the amount of dangerous radiation to which astronauts are exposed. Sending human travelers to Mars would require scientists and engineers to overcome a range of technological and safety obstacles. One of them is the grave risk posed by particle radiation from the sun distant stars, and galaxies. Answering two key questions would go a long way toward overcoming that hurdle. Would particle radiation pose too grave a threat to human life throughout a round trip to the red planet? And could the very timing of a mission to Mars help shield astronauts and the spacecraft from the radiation? In a new article published in the peer-reviewed journal Space Weather, 
an international team of space scientists, including researchers from UCLA, answer those two questions with a yes and a no. That is, humans should be able to safely travel to and from Mars, provided that the spacecraft has sufficient shielding and the round trip is shorter than approximately four years. And the timing of a human mission to Mars would indeed make a difference. The scientists determined that the best time for a flight to leave Earth would be when solar activity is at its peak, known as a solar maximum. The scientists' calculations demonstrate that it would be possible to shield a Mars-bound spacecraft from energetic particles from the Sun because, during solar maximum, the most dangerous and energetic particles from distant galaxies are deflected by the enhanced solar activity. A trip of that length would be conceivable. The average flight to Mars takes about nine months. So, depending on the timing of launch and available fuel, it is plausible that a human mission could reach the planet and return to Earth in less than two years. This study shows that while space radiation imposes strict limitations on how heavy the spacecraft can be and the time of launch, and it presents technological difficulties for human missions to Mars, such a mission is viable. The researchers recommend a mission not longer than four years because a longer journey would expose astronauts to a dangerously high amount of radiation during the round trip, even assuming they went when it was relatively safe than at other times. They also report that the main danger to such a flight would be particles from outside of our solar system. The scientists combined geophysical models of particle radiation for a solar cycle with models for how radiation would affect both human passengers, including its varying effects on different bodily organs and the spacecraft. The modeling determined that having a spacecraft shell built out of a relatively thick material could help protect astronauts from radiation, but that if the shielding is too thick, it could actually increase the amount of secondary radiation which they are exposed. The two main types of hazardous radiation in space are solar energetic particles and galactic cosmic rays. The intensity of each depends on solar activity. Galactic cosmic ray activity is lowest within the 6 to 12 months after the peak solar activity, while solar energetic particles intensity is greatest during solar minimum. New research uncovers perils of long-duration spaceflight. Astronauts need at least three years between missions for their brains to recover from the effects of microgravity, according to a new study. The brains of astronauts hanging out in microgravity environments start to change over time and need at least three years to reset, new research suggests. A group of researchers studied the brain scans of 30 astronauts after their trips to space and found that the brain ventricles expanded significantly for those who had spent six months or longer on board the International Space Station. The study published last week in Scientific Reports suggests that astronauts should spend three years on Earth between their missions to allow their brains to recover. Ventricles are a network of cavities filled with cerebral spinal fluid that cushion the brain while also nourishing and protecting it. 
Without gravity, the fluid starts to shift upwards, pushing the brain higher up against the skull and expanding the ventricles, according to the study. The more time astronauts spent in space, the bigger the effect on their brains. Out of the 30 astronauts whose brains were studied, eight had gone on two-week missions, while 18 had been on six-month-long missions, and four were in space for around one year. The brain scans show no measurable change in the ventricles for astronauts who spent only two weeks in space. A study at the University of Florida found that the more time people spent in space, the larger their ventricles became. Space can take a serious toll on the body. In 2005, NASA astronaut John Phillips reported that his vision had changed following a six-month-long mission on board the ISS. Phillips wasn't the only one. A series of follow-up tests revealed that most astronauts suffered similar changes to their eyesight. Previous research has also shown that long-duration spaceflight may fundamentally alter the amount of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain. With the increased volume of fluid remaining for a full year after astronauts return from space. The list doesn't stop there. As other research shows, long-duration spaceflight can result in a loss of bone density and the onset of muscular atrophy. In addition to detrimental effects on the heart, eyes, spine, cells, and overall physical fitness, Returning to brain health, research from 2017 showed that extended stints in space caused gray matter to both increase and decrease in different regions of the brain, which is likely not good. Gray matter plays a major role in many essential functions, including muscle control, the processing of emotions, the storage of memories, and the interpretation of sensory perception. All that said, there still isn't that much known on the full extent of the effects of spaceflight on the human body, given that there are only a few subjects that have actually spent time in space. As NASA and other space agencies begin to set goals of establishing a sustainable human presence on the moon, and perhaps even Mars, this type of research is now more crucial than ever. NASA don't know yet for sure what the long-term consequences of this brain ventricle expansion is on the health and behavioral health of space travelers. The study does show, however, that the expansion of the brain ventricles taper off after the six-month mark. The changes don't increase exponentially, considering we will eventually have people in space for longer periods. The main takeaway from the recent study is that astronauts need some recovery time on Earth before they can venture back out to space again allowing at least three years for their brain ventricles to return to normal. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we explore technology, computers, the workplace, and everything more. One of the biggest things that we are going through these days, and and we should be, as we move through life, technology is coming along, and we need all of us to navigate 
and adapt to all of the new technologies that are emerging, constantly emerging in our workplace. When I started in the field, I I started as a field technician and then I went on to being an IT manager and then later an IT director. And I've been in a number of different places throughout my entire career. But one of the things that has stayed very constant in my work environment has been that of change, constantly evolving. So how do you keep up with the latest technological advances? How do you take advantage of training opportunities? How do you integrate new technologies into your workflow? What are the things that you can do as far as embracing this, collaborating, and more? So let me, let me talk about these. First off, you need to stay up to date with the latest technological advancements in your field. You ever go to the doctor and you realize that this doctor is practicing medicine from the 1960s, the 1970s, and you realize there's something wrong here. You ever meet up with someone, and and maybe it's somebody you know in the workplace, and they are still, they're still clinging on to Windows 95. Nothing, nothing good has come out of, uh, out of computers since then. Okay, look. I want you to to go through and I want you to think about areas with the programs that you're dealing with, that you're working with, and how you can improve your productivity. Are you in Excel all day long? Take an Excel class. Yes, you may find through that Excel class that you know half of the things that they're teaching, 70% of the things that they're teaching. I will tell you, that that remaining half, that remaining 30%, maybe it's even just 15% of that particular class that you take actually provides new revelations to you. I will tell you, those new revelations are amazing. Whatever it is that you're learning, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you are that you're working with, if you can improve upon that just by learning those little tidbits, those little new advances that you did not know before, if you can learn those and you can leverage those, you're going to be far better off than anyone you're working with. So take advantage of of training opportunities. Most companies will allow you to take one technology class every year. That's just, that's good advice to any employer. You're an employer, you're saying, no, I I don't believe in training. Everybody should know how to do their job. Yes, I want everybody to know how to do their job, but I also want them to know how to do their job better than they did last year, the previous year, and so forth. So I want to encourage you to start with these small, manageable changes, these small, little advances. You're not going to go on out and you're not going to take a class and you're not going to take a class in Excel and everything is going to be brand new to you. You know that if you enter in a formula that says, you know, give me the give me the total of A1, B1, C1, give me the sum total of all of those. It, that's not what we do in life. 
we need to constantly improve upon that. You may know the basics of math, but what if you start leveraging these different data bits that are coming along through Excel? And, and I'm using Excel as an example. It, it doesn't have to be Excel. It can be Word. It can be uh, maybe you, you start learning how to use Access, the database program. But I will tell you that this is going to be of value whether you're an employer or an employee, those bits and pieces. And furthermore, start sharing your knowledge. I will tell you, there are people that are locked in. They never want to share any of their knowledge. They don't want to share their little secret sauce of how they get the job done a matter of three minutes faster in an hour an hour-long job, they get it done three minutes faster. I will tell you those three minutes are a secret sauce. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe you do it twice as fast as anybody else. But if everybody's doing it twice as fast, think about the value that you're providing to the company. It, it, it all starts to mount up. Every little bit and piece that you can just add in and you can streamline. Part of that comes, I, I've talked about automation before. Automation brings in those values. Look, the, the key thing, though, for this day, for, for this topic right now, is adapt, grow, learn, Get with people, and and I don't know if if you are in contact with various tech-focused interest groups. You're participating in knowledge-sharing sessions. Cross-training is is a beautiful thing. We're always scared. Oh, if I teach somebody something, they're going to take my job. It usually doesn't happen. If they take your job, it's, it's because something else happened. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The average cable TV subscriber pays $1,618 annually. The average U.S. consumer pays $1,600 annually for cable TV channels they don't watch. These audiences typically have access to 190 channels but only watch 15. Meanwhile, the cable bill has grown 52% in the last three years, speeding up cord-cutting four out of five linear TV customers, wish they could pay for just the channels they watch, similar to the streaming model. Today's audience has more options for entertainment than ever before, and explosion in streaming services, as well as changing consumer behaviors during the pandemic, has led to more audiences cutting the cord on their cable bill. In 2021 alone, over 4.7 million households cut the cord and about 1.95 million homes left major TV providers in just the first quarter of 2022. Currently, the cable TV market share is under 50% globally. Despite this sea change in TV consumption, Roughly 90 million subscribers still pay for cable TV in the United States, the third largest market behind China and India. But a recent study has shed new light on just how much value these cable TV subscriptions are providing as the average bill continues to skyrocket, even more alarming for advertisers. 
most channels and ad placements aren't even being watched in the first place. Cable is becoming less valuable. A recent study from CordCutting.com found that while the average number of channels in a cable package has dropped since 2019, the average bill has grown exponentially, from $96 to $147 a month. That's an increase of 52% in just three years, pushing the price per channel cost from $0.50 to $0.77. That's three times the cost of inflation, at a time when consumers are being more budget-conscious about their entertainment spending. But perhaps more alarming than the rising cost is that the study found almost all of the channels in the average cable TV package goes unwatched. Despite having access to almost 200 channels, the average viewer just watches 15. That leaves 92% of channels unwatched by the average American consumer, and it means that the already rising cost of cable TV is secretly much higher. A monthly payment of $147 to watch just 15 channels results in a true cost of $9.57 per channel, an amount that either exceeds or rivals the cost of leading streaming services. In fact, for less than one-third of the cost of the cable TV bill, consumers could get a monthly subscription to all the major services and still get access to all of their favorite broadcasts and cable TV shows on services like Hulu, Paramount Plus, Peacock, and HBO Max. As a result, the average consumer is wasting $135 every month or $1,618 a year on channels they don't watch. For viewers that watch even less than 15 channels, that cost continues to rise. What are the implications for the cable industry? The rising cost of cable TV and the amount of unwatched channels that get forced into packages is causing growing frustration amongst subscribers at a time when the cable TV industry cannot afford to lose any more ground to streaming. Over half of all customers polled, that's 62%, think they're wasting money on their monthly TV bill. Further, 45% say they cancel their subscription altogether if their cable wasn't attached to the internet provider, a sign that cable strategy to bundle services together and keep people subscribed is causing people to feel locked in, rather than elect to pay for cable TV as the monthly bills and frustrations grow, these consumers will likely to start looking for alternatives, including ISPs that don't force cable TV packages. Even satisfied cable TV audiences aren't staying completely faithful to their provider. Even if they have yet to cut the cord, the majority of cable TV subscribers are at least flirting with the idea. Over 54% of all cable TV customers polled pay for at least one additional streaming service, and the generational breakdown may surprise you. While it's not surprising that millennials and Gen Z lead the pack, even nearly half of all baby boomers are experimenting with streaming content. This growing familiarity with connected TV is impacting how subscribers view their relationship with cable. Four out of five customers wish they could pay for just the channels they want, wishing that cable TV was more like streaming. What does this mean for advertisers? Advertisers buying media placements on cable TV are looking at two separate but equally important conflicts in this report. First, as cable TV packages continue to rise in cost, audiences will likely increasingly get agitated 
and look for alternative solutions, driving up the rate of cord cutting and lowering the number of impressions on each ad buy. Second, the revelation that over 92% of channels go unwatched means that finding the right audience with your ad, an already tricky proposition, thanks to cable's lack of targeting and measurement, is suddenly more difficult. Now brands have not just worried about the ads being relevant to the audience, they have to worry that their money is being completely wasted on channels that viewers don't even watch or know that, that they exist. The conclusion is that with the increasing shift of ad dollars going to CTV, often being pulled from both linear TV and social media budgets, it's clear that advertisers are chasing their customers to this new opportunity. CTV offers advertisers a broader reach the ability to target your ideal customer regardless of when or what they're watching, and the measurement to provide meaningful metrics. Barring any kind of seismic shift in the public sentiment, CTV or cable TV will continue to overtake its cable TV forebearer as prices continue to increase. Audiences cut the cord and advertisers follow. The cable TV numbers are falling faster than expected. The numbers are in from the Convergence report showing streaming is here to stay. Up to 72% of all U.S. households are expected to become cord cutters by 2025. This is far faster than many had expected just a few years ago. Based on that data, it concluded that 2022 in the United States, over-the-top transmission access revenue grew 26% to $49.6 billion and forecasts of 21% growth in 2023, but that growth was significantly slow to 13% in 2025. The report provides an educated guesstimate that online advertising for both broadcasting and cable TV networks would reach 23% in revenue by 2025. Numbers have been dropping for years, as more people bounce from cable contracts to streaming services. Last year, cable networks saw subscriber losses of 11%, and the Convergence report stated that there were 70 million homes without a cable, satellite, or telco TV access provider. That's approximately 53% of all U.S. households. Couch Potato estimates the number will jump up to 75% by the end of 2025. The Couch Potato report estimates subscriber loss to be 14% this year and reach 16% by 2025. In 2022, the decline totals 7.37 million subscribers, and this year the number is expected to reach 8.24 million. Between 2022 and 2028, an estimated 70% of TV subscribers will cut the cord, depleting the revenue by 60% or more each year as households that sever ties will double. This doesn't necessarily mean everyone is cutting the cord, is signing up for alternative entertainment sources. Some could be purging programming from their systems and may not sign up for any streaming services. Subscription numbers for almost every streaming platform are going up every year and are likely to continue this trend for years to come. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. 
Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, we are starting into this. These are the early days of summer. We're 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 moving moving along, and I understand you've got a couple of items that are quite attractive. Oh, I've got some hot ideas. Yes, yes. <laughs> hot ideas. Wait. Okay. Yes, go on. At least at least it's not as cold as it was in April and May. Uh, yeah. Uh, Last winter, uh, mm-hmm. bomb blizzards had had some outages, and uh, the house mm-hmm. got to be unfriendly. Now we we did have the blown-in foam insulation, so it didn't change temperature as rapidly as it might have. But still, you don't want to be going everywhere with blankets and sweaters on. Mm-hmm. Now we have a line of defense against that beyond the foam, and it's also relevant in the summer. It's the EcoFlow Wave Two portable heater and air conditioner. Mm-hmm. It's uh, as big as a bread box, if anybody remembers those. It's uh, <laughs> give you a better... It, it It's about the size of a covered cat litter box. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> okay. About one by one by two feet. Uh, it also has a battery pack. It sold as an accessory, but everybody's going to get the battery pack. So you plug this into AC or a solar panel. You can recharge it from your car. Mm-hmm. The battery lets it keep something the size of a tent or an RV or a power-denied bedroom cool for three to eight hours in mm, the summer. Okay. Uh, use the app to set the temperature and fan speed. Keep an eye on the water level in air conditioning mode when you get the condensation. Let you set timers and that kind of thing. Here's some of the numbers. 1,500 watts of cooling or heating capacity up to... 170 cubic feet per minute of airflow. Okay. Thermostat settings between 60 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit. You don't want to run it if it's an ambient temperature that's less than 40 degrees, you know, back down toward freezing, mm-hmm. or more than 122 degrees. You don't want to be there anyway. So you can use it <laughs> yeah. for your tent uh, or, well, in many, maybe even most, but not all weather conditions. You know, okay, if it's yeah, really hostile yeah. outside, you're going to not to have fun having this there. Uh, not including the battery. Uh, it weighs 32 pounds, comes with extendable okay. ducting hoses and a drain hose and gets the air where you want it and keeps the drain out of where you don't. It's the Wave 2 from EcoFlow. It's about $1,300, but the battery pack adds another 900 if you want that too. Ooh, okay. But, you know, for that peace of mind, especially for... Especially for families that have to have controlled temperatures, True. the elderly, uh, people who are infirm and so forth. That, yeah, good. But also when you're leaving home, camping or whatever. Sure, yeah. So it, it, I like that. Good multi-use item there. Yeah. Now, there's another item here that is a little bit of multi-use. It is the smartest grill I've ever seen, the Brisk It. That's not a pun. It's not a brisket. It's two words, B-R-I-S-K and then I-T. The okay. brisket origin 580 smart grill. Okay. So I've seen the the various thermometers. You and I have both seen a number of these items. I, I had not seen a smart grill yet. So, oh, so, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I do know that you are quite a carnivore. You you actually told me about tomahawk steaks at one point, and oh, I wasn't aware of that. Lusty and, meat. Yes, oh, absolutely. yes. So, you know, that, our segments reach, what, almost one and a half million nerds and geeks. <laughs> and all of us are proud of the tech wisdom that implies. Yeah. Sometimes emotions take over. And for me, a really cool grill can 
make it all come home. Brisket, that's two words. Yeah. Sent there, brisket origin 580 smart grill, a wood pellet grill and smoker with lots of sensors okay. and automation and AI and cloud smarts in the picture. That means really tight control over active fires, cooking temperatures, smoking temperatures, smoker generation levels, dual probe monitoring, and it's adaptive. Even finding ways to deal with mistakes like forgetting to wrap something in foil. Oh, okay. All right. All right. It's app not only gives you lots of control and status info without having to go into solitary confinement at the grill, you know, mm -hmm, monitor mm -hmm. a bit. It's on your phone. And they work in-house on recipes in their app where you get the recipes. It's not only for you to read. They also drive specific profiles onto the grill. And you can say it's a Wi-Fi connected grill. You can start cooking with one touch. Okay. By the way, it cooking automation is also tracking the weather, like ambient temperature and wind, keeps track of the grill's ignition, flame outs, remaining pellet fuel level, 22-pound hopper. That's not right away. It can run long and cool for smoking, or you can crank the temperature up to 500. Oh. Now, 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 back up. You said it actually monitors the, the, the weather. So if you have like a big, huge... A series of gusts. You've got a. Uh, you didn't expect it to be a windy day, and all of a sudden you're getting wind alerts. Well, It'll back it down. I mean, it's not telling you the weather; it's just adapting to it. Okay, all right, and but that's still pretty good. If you're smoking, the the tops uh, closed, so you're not going to lose temperature. But you, you want to keep aware of that because it, yeah, it all yeah. interplays. Uh, by the way, it's got a fan, so you're also doing convection cooking. Okay, nice. Uh, now, they're, they promise to update the recipes in the apps. What they're showing really focuses on smoking. There are only three recipes listed that take less than an hour. And you can make a whole meal in 20 minutes on this thing if you want to. Sure. So from what most people cook, steaks, chops, sausages, and so on, cook the way you always do. You'll need two people to assemble the grill. I did it myself in just a few hours because I'm older than most of you. Uh, now, I know tricks, right? The brisket <laughs> origin... 580 Smart Grill. It's about $850 on Amazon. Okay. So I, I, I would I would expect it to be about, you know, it's going to be a higher-end grill. It's going to be, you know, with all those smarts to it, I would expect it to be in that price range. That's that's pretty good. Now, if only we could team it up with one of the robots to deliver dinner when it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just picks it up with a robot vacuum and <laughs> drops it on a plate. There we go. That's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rock. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect. Thursday, July the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, July the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. 
The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. And just to let everyone know, I'm aware that there is an issue with the website of the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, and they're working on recovering and restoring it to operation. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.